thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Coming up this week, mosquitoes that can't catch malaria, genes from Arctic bacteria that could make better vaccines, and why high heels are a pain in the ankle. But not for me, thankfully. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Sarah Castor-Perry. Sarah. Hello. This week we're also looking at the science of nuclear energy. The arguments for nuclear are pretty compelling from a climate change perspective. Well, typically you might expect a tonne of uranium to produce as much energy as a million tonnes of coal. That's a very important difference because when we're talking about waste products, the waste products from the nuclear energy is much, much smaller. But how much waste does the nuclear industry produce and what can we make do to make sure it's safe? Well, scientists are beginning to explore new ways to merge nuclear fission, the technology we use now, with nuclear fusion, the process that powers the sun, to produce hybrid reactors, which, apart from generating power, will also burn off the waste they make. But is this feasible? This week also saw the 65th anniversary of the first atomic bomb test. We'll be talking to David Wallman, who's been to the Trinity site where it all happened. Chris. Sarah, thank you very much. Also on the way, Ben and Dave are going to be building a homemade radiation detector in their garage. Stay tuned to find out whether or not it works. Meanwhile, if you've got a question for us, the email address chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can, of course, send us a tweet to at Naked Scientist. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Sarah Castor-Perry. And let's kick off with a look, as we always do, at what's hot in the world of science. Sarah. Right, well, starting off, there's been a study published this week in the journal PLOS Pathogens where scientists attempted and succeeded in creating a malaria-proof mosquito. This is really exciting because malaria kills about a million people every year, most of them children. It's caused by a parasite called plasmodium that infects and replicates inside female Anopheles mosquitoes before being passed on to the next person. And the incubation period in the mosquito is about 10 to 14 days. So the group from the University of Arizona, led by Michael Reilly, genetically engineered Anopheles mosquitoes to increase the expression of a particular gene for a protein in the gut called AKT. The researchers compared mosquito siblings with and without the engineered gene by feeding both groups an artificial blood meal containing plasmodium. Ten days later, the team checked the guts of the mosquitoes to see if any of the plasmodium had successfully formed oocysts, the next stage in their development. Up to 99% of the mosquitoes that were heterozygous for the engineered gene, which means they had one copy of it, were found to be parasite-free. And all of the homozygous mosquitoes, which means they had two copies of the gene, were parasite-free. And there was also a 20% reduction in their lifespan. And this is a really important point because it takes time for the plasmodium to develop in the mosquito to become infectious. So shortening the lifespan of the vector is an efficient way of preventing infection. But what does this mean in the global scale, the global fight against malaria? 
Well, Rayleigh's eventual aim is that engineered mosquitoes will be released and breed with wild populations, introducing the engineered gene to reduce plasmodium infection and shorten mosquito lifespan. This is obviously quite a long way off, but the study is really quite an encouraging first step. They don't yet know, though, why the AKT, when you put the level up in the mosquito, actually makes it resistant to malaria, do they? No, it's to do with insulin and the insulin in the human blood and the way that that affects the response of the mosquito. But no, they're still not quite sure exactly what it is about the gene. But I suppose even though they don't really know how it works, it's still a good sign. Well, the fact that they've found this and found that it does work means that now there's some handle on the problem and it's a fertile area to explore because it's obviously really important for how malaria affects a mosquito. So regardless of whether we can make a mosquito which is uh, resistant to malaria, it's a, a new thing to start looking at to solve this problem, isn't it? Well, yeah, exactly. And it's really important as well because there are a lot of strains of malaria that are becoming resistant to the quinine-based drugs that we're giving people so looking at other areas to solve it is a great idea and like you say uh, several hundred million cases a year and more than a million people dying most of them children so very important serious disease now also this week talking about infectious diseases vaccines are a really good way to prevent the spread of infectious diseases and scientists have shown that in fact a dose of genes from bacteria living in the arctic could hold the key to making live attenuated vaccines against common bacterial pathogens. So what do I mean by that? Well, the best vaccines that we can give people are what are called live vaccines. This is where you take a weakened form of the bug that you wish to immunise someone against and you put that into the person and because it creates a sort of natural infection, albeit an attenuated one, the person's immune system therefore gets to see the entire genetic repertoire of that organism, if you like, how it grows and what sorts of things it produces when it infects the body. So you get a very good, broad-spectrum immune response against that particular pathogen. Problem is that when scientists try to make so-called attenuated or weakened forms of these bacteria or viruses, there's a danger that they can undergo what's called reversion. They can undo the weakening effect and they become virulent again. And this could make the people that you're vaccinating become very sick, as well as putting into the environment that risky organism. So is there another way? Well, Barry Duplantis, who's a researcher at the University of Victoria in Canada has got a paper in the journal PNAS this week and he and his colleagues have decided that a fertile approach is to go to the Arctic. Now their reasoning is as follows. There are organisms, bacteria, that live in the Arctic that have evolved there for millions if not billions of years to tolerate really, really low temperatures. So they carry genes which are essential for them to live which will only work at really low temperatures. But many of the common bacteria that are pathogenic to you and me also rely on some of the same sorts of genes. So if you take the genes from the bacteria in the Arctic and put some of those essential genes into common pathogens, the common pathogens now can only grow at very low temperatures. And what they were able to demonstrate is that you can put these bacteria carrying these Arctic genes instead of their own genes into a peripheral body part of a rodent, for example, where the tissue is cooler and the bacteria will just about grow there. And as they do so, they prime the immune system. And that means that if you come along three weeks later with what would be an, an, a lethal dose of the same wild-type, nasty form of pathogen, the animals are completely protected. And they've done this and shown this can work for Francisella, which is a pathogenic bacteria that causes a human disease called tularemia. It's almost universally fatal. Nasty thing, that. They've also done it with Salmonella, 
common cause of food poisoning, of course, and typhoid, major cause of death all over the world, and also mycobacteria, the uh, strain of bugs that uh, include TB in their number. So important bacterial problem, and this could be one very clever way to produce live vaccines that are safe, because those genes that come from the Arctic have got millions of years of evolution, making them very, very sensitive to uh, hot and cold, and it's very difficult for a bug just growing in uh, a peripheral tissue for a short space of time to unevolve all that work that evolution has done. Well, it's exciting that something could solve a problem for so many different diseases in one fell swoop, I suppose. Isn't evolution an amazing thing? The fact that uh, you've got all the bacteria in the world and they're all relying on a small cross-section, maybe a 100 genes or so, that are essential to them and which you can replace with a copy from a bacterium from a totally different environment and change the way the pathogen works. Fantastic, very interesting. Well, now we're moving to the oceans, and it's uh, it's pretty rare in recent times to find a positive story about life in the oceans. But this week, researchers from the University of Bern in Norway have shown that there is a species that is unexpectedly thriving. The study, published in Science, is about a fish called the bearded goby, Suflagobius bibarbatus, and it's it catchy. Seems- Yes, I know. It just rolls off the tongue. And it seems to be an unexpected winner in an ecosystem that's been severely damaged, called the Benguela upwelling system off the coast of Namibia. In the 1960s, aggressive overfishing combined with environmental changes in the area led to a collapse of the sardine population and a shift in the structure of the whole ecosystem. There was a massive rise in jellyfish numbers and the seabed was covered in this sulphurous low-oxygen mud layer and it was pretty much considered to be a dead ecosystem. But the team led by Anne Utner-Palm found that the bearded gobies are just thriving there. They showed through a series of actually pretty elegant behavioural and physiological experiments that the gobies have been able to hide in the low oxygen mud on the seafloor, so hiding from predators, and feed on the bacteria in the mud. They turn down their metabolism to survive in the low oxygen sort of sludge and then ascend up into the more oxygen-rich layers of the water under the safety of darkness to digest the food. They also munch away on the jellyfish, returning what were previously thought to be dead-end resources back to the food chain by then becoming prey themselves to larger fish. So it's quite exciting because they could be seen as a bit of a stabilising factor, buffering local fisheries that are just starting to recover against environmental changes in the future. And it's, it's very promising because it shows that it is possible for an apparently collapsed marine ecosystem to recover. I think you just have to accept that nature is a wonderful thing and it's also very resilient. Thank God it is too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. Well, just to finish off... I'm told, because I don't wear them myself, that if you wear high heels for a period of time to go into more flat-footed footwear can lead to significant amounts of discomfort. Well, now we know, scientifically speaking, why. Because Marco Narici, who's a researcher from Manchester Metropolitan University, has published a paper in the Journal of Experimental Biology this week explaining the reason. He recruited 80 women off the streets of Manchester with an ad in a local newspaper. The inclusion criteria were they had to have been wearing heels that were five centimetres or more Uh, high for at least two years and out of that 80 he found 11 women who did indeed fulfill the criterion that they had pain when they walked around in more flat-footed shoes and to find out why he ultrasound scanned the calf muscles of these women and found that the muscle fibers were 13 percent shorter than control women who'd never worn or didn't wear high heels regularly and then he did an mri scan on the tendon the achilles tendon in these women and found that between the two groups of control women and heel wearers the tendons were the same length but they're actually stiffer and thicker in the high heel wearing women so the reason that when the high heel wearers stop wearing their high heels that they get the pain is because the muscle is much shorter 
The tendon is stiffer and can't stretch sufficiently to compensate for the fact that the foot is now flatter, so it gets uncomfortable. So that's the price that people are paying for fashion. Sarah, I won't ask you if you wear high heels. I don't, actually. I, I, I get the complete opposite problem. I find high heels are actually so painful I can't even wear them. I feel, you know, I've stuck with my flat shoes, I'm afraid. You are a sensible person. And this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Sarah Castor-Perry. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Sarah Castor-Perry. If you'd like to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com, Sarah. This week, we're looking at nuclear power. On the way, we'll hear about the hybrid reactors that could use nuclear waste as extra fuel, and Ben and Dave build a basic cloud chamber to show up the radioactivity in the air around us. But first, why is nuclear waste such a problem? To find out more about how nuclear fission works, the waste it creates, and the problems with burying it in underground geological repositories, Mira Senthalingam met Cambridge University's Dr Ian Farnan. Well, when we're talking about nuclear energy to generate electricity, what we're talking about is controlling the reaction of a neutron with a heavy element, such as uranium-235. What we do is we divide up uh, the uranium into pellets and put those pellets into fuel rods, and those fuel rods are then clad in a zircaloy, an alloy cladding. What that allows us to do is to have between those rods of fuel water, and control rods, which are made of neutron-absorbing materials. The way that the water and the control rods slow down the neutrons, it controls the rate at which that uranium atom splits. Okay? It's the fission of that uranium atom that we, we're trying to control with nuclear energy. So essentially, you're bombarding uranium atoms with neutrons and breaking the uranium apart to release energy. That's right, and uh, the neutrons come from the uranium itself. So each fission of the uranium has, on average, about two and a half neutrons produced during that fission event, and those neutrons go on to split further uranium atoms. And so what happens is that then you split the uranium atoms and you'll get different fragments produced of, of other elements. So you're transmuting the uranium into two roughly equally sized smaller elements. But how much energy does that release, say, in comparison to fossil fuels? Well, typically, you might expect a tonne of uranium to produce as much energy as a million tonnes of coal, for example. So that's quite a, a big difference. Yes, yes. It's a very important difference because when we're talking about waste products, for example, carbon dioxide from the burning of coal, there's an enormous amount of carbon produced from that, a million tonnes of coal, whereas the waste products from the nuclear energy is much, much smaller. Well, what are the waste products? So you split this uranium, and then what's produced? You get various products from the uranium fission. So typically you might have barium and zirconium. Then there's some distribution of different elements below those. The neutrons which are in the reactor also activate other elements, both within the fuel and within the steels which make up the um, reactor vessel. Those elements might be cobalt-60 or iron-55, for example. Now, I guess the important difference, though, when it comes to nuclear energy is the risks, say, associated with these waste products. Which of these are a concern, and, and are they different as well? Well, when we take the fuel out of the reactor, it can be separated basically into three types of waste products. There's the fission products that I've already mentioned. There's neutron activation products, 
And then there are what's called the actinides. Uranium, which is still the vast majority of the nuclear fuel, is still uranium dioxide. Then you have plutonium and some other heavier elements, uh, americium and curium. So you need to handle these materials in different ways. Now, the standard way in this country has been to reprocess the nuclear fuel rods and put the fission products and the neutron activation products into a, a glass. So this is a process called vitrification. You can dissolve up the nuclear fuel rod in, in acid and then separate the heavier elements like uranium and plutonium, leaving you with an acidic, highly radioactive liquid, which is then dried and made into a borosilicate glass. And are these radioactive elements quite stable within this glass? As far as we can tell, they, they seem to be pretty well stable in the glass. The glass itself is not often tested because it is extremely radioactive, okay, and it's very hot. Typical centre-line temperatures of a, of a glass canister will be over 400 degrees centigrade. So the glass is immediately poured into this canister, this molten glass at 1,100 degrees C, but the, the radiogenic heat keeps the temperature of the, of the glass very high. So the glasses themselves are not really examined, but these seem to be quite stable. But when it comes to radioactive elements, an important thing to consider is their half-life, so how fast they're going to decay. And I guess the faster something decays, the more risk it is immediately to you. So these fission products actually differ quite a lot in, say, their half-life and their radioactivity to the other heavier actinide elements, don't they? That's right. One of the advantages of separating the fuel by the reprocessing process is to put the fission products which have shorter half-lives, typically 30 years for strontium-90 or cesium-137. After, say, 300 years, which would be 10 half-lives, the radioactive load of those materials would be low enough that we wouldn't need to worry about it too much. That means that at the lifetime or the, the guarantee that the repository has to provide for the safety of the materials is much shorter, typically 1,000 years or so. The big concern then, or the main concern when it comes to the waste, are then these heavier actinide elements, because they've got quite a, a long half-life, so they're a concern long into the future as well. That's exactly right. So the elements like uranium, plutonium, americium, actinide elements are very heavy. They decay by what's called an alpha process, and their half-lives are typically, say for plutonium, 24,000 years, so you'd have to wait 10 half-lives, so say 240,000 years for that to decay to some sort of safe level. There we run into problems. If we want to guarantee the integrity of the geological repository site over those sorts of timescales, we're less certain about the, how the geology of the site will change, we're less certain whether the metals of the canisters will last, then start to get concerned about how water will progress through the repository, interact with these packages of nuclear waste, and, and water's the only way, really, that, that that material can come back up to the surface and, and enter the biosphere, where it'll be dangerous to humans and animals. But it's a very interesting question because we're looking at timescales now where you know, Homo sapiens are only about a quarter of a million years old ourselves. Now we're looking that far again into the future. So what will the human race look like at that point in the future when we, when we want to guarantee the lifetimes of these repositories? It's very, very difficult to provide that guarantee. We can probably make a, a pretty good shot at it, but if people want guarantees, then that's a very, very big challenge for scientists. 
So looking at the ways of dealing with nuclear waste is quite a complex challenge for the future. That was Mira Senthalingham talking to Dr Ian Farnan of Cambridge University about the problems with storing nuclear waste. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Sarah Castor-Perry. Coming up, we'll also be looking at the legacy of the atomic bomb which was detonated 65 years ago this week. David Warman has been to the site in America where it all happened. And we're looking at nuclear, partly for that reason, but partly because it's high up on the agenda from an energy point of view. And Bill Stacey is with us because, as you all have heard, radioactive waste produced by the nuclear industry is a very big problem. About 12,000 tonnes of it get produced around the world every single year, and at the moment... They need to be stored somewhere. But what if there was a way to take this waste and actually use it as a fuel instead? Well, that might sound too good to be true, but scientists think that it might be possible by building a nuclear fusion reactor that's nestling inside a fission reactor. And this hybrid reactor would then be able to produce large numbers of extra neutrons that can be used to burn off the waste inside the reactor and therefore make much more efficient use of the nuclear fuel. Well, Bill Stacey, as I said, he's from the Georgia Institute of Technology, is with us to explain how this could work. Hello, Bill. Hi. What's the general idea about this? How does it work? What's the concept? Well, the basic idea is that the actinides that uh, Ian was just mentioning are all fissionable in certain types of reactors. And so the basic idea is uh, instead of burying them, just uh, put them back in reactors and burn them, which means to fission them. Now, that's much easier said than done uh, because it turns into a, a competition for neutrons. As they fission, the fission products build up and the fission products are also competing for neutrons and it's hard to keep the reactor running. So there's a need for a few extra neutrons. And so the idea of the fusion-fission hybrid is to have a fusion neutron source that provides these extra neutrons for the uh, fission reactor that's burning up the, the actinides in, uh, in spent nuclear fuel. I get it. So basically what you've got is in the core of the reactor um, at the moment with a fission reactor, where those fuel rods are with the pellets of uranium in them, the waste products that build up as the reaction goes on prevent the reaction from happening very efficiently and so in the end you end up having to take the rods out even though only a tiny fraction of the fuel has been burned. So if we could find a way of getting more bang for the buck by burning off the waste products with extra neutrons then we'd save a whole lot of money and save a whole lot of waste as well. That's right. Now the, the waste products that we're talking about burning off are primarily the, the actinides that are left in the fuel. So they are unburned fuel for all practical purposes. The waste products that are the fission products also are competing for the neutrons. And so the problem is to get a few more neutrons. And that's where the, where the fusion idea comes in because the fusion reactor, as, as you said, that would be in the center, uh, would be producing extra neutrons and you can dial up the number of extra neutrons that you need. And so in this way, you can keep the fission reactor running a lot longer and enable it to uh, burn off the actinides. And basically, the efficiency of doing this is you can probably reduce by at least a factor of 10 the amount of material that would have to be stored in long-term geological repositories. And so that means you would reduce by a factor of 10 the uh, number of uh, repositories that you had to build. 
So that's that's substantial. So and talking practically, though, Bill, we can't even get a fusion reactor to work at the moment sustainably. How practical is it to try and get one that we could then have in the core of a nuclear power station that's a fission reactor? So you've got, yeah. you're going to put one kind of reactor inside another reactor. It's huge, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, this this is an idea that's been around for a long time because of the the arguments that I that I just made, but the thing that's different now is that it is feasible now to talk about building a, a fusion reactor. The uh, ITER project, uh, which is being built in uh, Catarache, uh, south of France, right now, will have a fusion tokamak uh, reactor. That if we just took that. Uh, technology and that uh, physics, that would be sufficient for the neutron source for a fusion-fission hybrid. So that device is being built now. It will start operating in about 10 years, and 10 to 20 years from now, we'll demonstrate the physics and the technology that's needed for the neutron source. So I think uh, you would say that to be able to deploy something like this, uh, starting in about 2030, 2040, is, uh, is a feasible thing. What about the safety aspect? Because you'd have a very, very hot, very, very powerful fusion reaction going on in the core of a supercritical fission reactor. Is there not quite a big element of danger there? Well, not really, because if anything happens to the fusion reactor, the fusion reactor is uh, the core of it is a gas like the sun. And basically the problem is to keep it from going out. And if anything happened to it, you'd just end up with a spoonful of, uh, of liquid hydrogen in the, uh, in the bottom of the vessel. There are, of course, interaction problems that have to be taken into account in the technology to do this. But uh, it's not as if uh, you've got the sun, in the, an uncontrolled sun, in the middle of a, of a fission reactor. And just to look at the numbers to finish us off, how much better would this be, apart from the waste issue, and you mentioned the tenfold reduction in that at least, how much better would this be than what we can achieve at the moment with standard fission? Well, that's the question that really needs to be evaluated. The, uh, the benefit of going with a fission fusion as opposed to uh, going with just a standard fission reactor to do this job is that you can leave the fuel in and burn it longer and so that means there would be fewer reprocessing steps, and so that means fewer reprocessing facilities. That means more efficiency in burning up the fuel, so fewer repositories. And then the other thing is that uh, since each of these fission-fusion hybrids can use reactors that are completely fueled with spent fuel, you wouldn't need so many of them as you would if you had just uh, conventional reactors, which could only be partially fueled with spent fuel. And, in fact, uh, we've done some calculations, and uh, we estimate that a nuclear fleet that was sort of 75% uh, light water reactors and 25% uh, fusion-fusion hybrid reactors would do this job uh, very well, whereas if we were talking about... Uh, a nuclear fleet made up of LWRs and plain fission burner reactors, it might be more like uh, 75% the burner reactors and 25% LWRs. It's a matter of efficiency.
Bill, we'll and have to leave it there because we would now like to talk to Swadesh, who's who's waiting to talk next. That's Bill Stacey from Georgia Tech. Swadesh Mahajan is also with us because he's working on solving one of the problems that Bill's just raised. And one of the obstacles of having a hybrid reactor like this is that you need a fusion reactor that's small enough to fit inside the fission reactor and yet at the same time be sufficiently powerful to drive the nuclear train reaction. And in fact, to work in a hybrid reactor, you'd need a fusion reactor that's about five times more powerful than the ones we currently have. And what limits the power of fusion reactors at the moment is how to make an exhaust system that can cope with the extreme superheated gases that need to be vented from the reaction process. But researchers at the Institute for Fusion Studies at the University of Texas in Austin have come up with a new way of handling the exhaust. They're calling it the SuperX Diverter, and Swadesh Mahajan is here to explain how it works and partly also what the name means. Swadesh, hello. Hi. So tell us first of all, before we get into the SuperX Diverter, What's the structure of a fusion reactor? How does it work? And what's the problem that you're trying to solve? Typically, what you have is that uh, you have superheated plasma, as you said, and uh, when certain conditions are satisfied, it can have uh, enough fusion reactions to produce uh, the much-wanted neutrons. Now, of course, you had earlier raised the question that, you know, when there is so much doubt about fusion being uh, a reality, uh, how could we really talk about the fusion reactors being stuck inside uh, a fission reactor? So what one has to do is that although producing direct energy from fusion may be a very distant, uh, maybe in very distant future, but there is another aspect of fusion that is its ability to produce neutrons, which could go and aid in a bad fission reaction. That particular goal is well within our uh, our sight. And in fact, we are going to simply depend on that. So this particular uh, super X diverter that one is talking about essentially became a necessity because we need to make a fusion reactor which produces a copious supply of neutrons. And at the same time, it has to be sufficiently compact that we can lower it in and take it out of a standard fusion reactor. So for that, you require enormous energy densities. Not necessarily the total power is more than ETER, but the power densities are about five times more than that of ETER. So it's going to be a material science problem, isn't it? That the the demands you're placing on the reactor infrastructure are far and away beyond what the materials we have today are capable of delivering. You, You said it absolutely correctly. So what we are going to do is to develop a scheme so that we do not depend on wonder materials. We are going to just learn to live with the materials that we have. So then the important thing was that a better confined plasma has to have a better configuration of magnetic field outside the plasma which connects us to the external world. And the external world means walls. And the diverter is a special wall which is so designed that the hot plasma goes and finds resting place there. And if we use the standard diverter which, for instance, ITER uses, then, of course, it will be far too inadequate in being able to handle the enormous heat and particle fluxes which uh, a high-power-density compact machine will produce. So basically, just to sort of translate a little bit, so at the moment a fusion reactor has got the, the fuel in the centre of the reaction vessel at very high temperature, 100, 100 million degrees or more, and okay. this is being held in situ by very powerful magnetic fields. It's okay. going to produce exhaust gases which have got to be vented. At the moment, trying to vent those through existing materials 
the demands are too high for those materials. So you've come up with this very clever way of taking the uh, exhaust in a sort of circuitous route around the wall of the containment vessel so that it loses some of its heat into that wall, bringing it down to a temperature that the materials can handle. Right. In the process of its transport from the main plasma to the wall, we do two things on it. We make it travel very long distances along the magnetic lines so that they lose a fair amount of their energy in this uh, process. And furthermore, we do what's called flux expansion, so that they expand in area, so that the impact on a square meter of the wall material becomes considerably less, in this case, which, uh, which is confirmed by state-of-the-art codes, by a factor of five less. So therefore, we just cross the threshold so that a powerful fusion module which is replaceable, which can be taken in and out of a fission reactor, can actually be thought of as a, as a near-term possibility. So it's looking like it's genuinely real. And just to finally finish off, Swadesh, uh, what do you think is the ultimate benefit of, of moving into the fusion regime rather than just doing nuclear fission like we do at the moment? Actually, I would say that what we have right now is an intermediate regime where fusion and fission are cooperating. In order to make them cooperate, one has to work very hard because these two are extremely complicated technologies and the progeny, to be beautiful, you have to work extremely hard to get it there. And I believe that the, with the super X diverters, such possibilities have come into existence. Now, I believe that uh, within the next 15 to 20 years, uh, a real hybrid can be actually put together if there is sufficient amount of funding and interest. And once you have that, I can imagine an era of nuclear energy which is quite green and quite abundant. And in fact, the fuel for this is produced in a reasonably proliferation-resistant manner, much more proliferation-resistant than, for instance, centrifugation. And Which is I the perfect place to stop because, of course, we're going to be talking to David Warman in just a second, who's been to the Trinity site where the first nuclear bomb was detonated. Swadesh, thank you very much. That's Swadesh Mahajan, who's from the University of Texas, and Austin, Sarah. And, of course, nuclear fusion is also the process that powers the sun. And if you'd like to find out a bit more about the process of how stars like the sun form in the first place and then kickstart our own, their own fusion reactions, the Open University have a webpage explaining the process. To find it, go to thenakedscientist.com and follow the links from the front page to the Open University's Making Stars page. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, the Naked Scientists. Science that's fundamentally more fun. This is the Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Sarah Castor-Perry. Sarah. If you'd like to contact us through Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or you can send an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Now, on the 16th of July, 1945, the project codenamed Trinity was put into action. Trinity was the first test of an atomic bomb, the first nuclear weapon. The bomb, nicknamed the Gadget, was detonated in a remote area of New Mexico and the test heralded the birth of the atomic age, with the Fat Man atomic bomb being detonated over Nagasaki in Japan less than a month later. 65 years on, the test site is hard to access and rarely visited, but journalist and author David Wallman risked the radiation to find out more about this historic site. Hi, David. Hi there, Sarah. Welcome to The Naked Scientists. Thank you. Why don't you start off by setting the scene for us a bit. Where, where exactly is the Trinity site and what's it like? Sure. Well, in the southern part of the already rather desolate state of New Mexico, there is this 
giant swatch of land that the military owns. Today it's called White Sands Missile Range, and one spot within that area of sort of desert basin and blaring sunshine and creosote and sagebrush and mesquite, you have this black obelisk now standing to mark the spot, the ground zero, where the first atomic bomb was detonated. And at the time, almost everyone in America didn't know what was happening down there. And it was chosen, not surprisingly, because it is so incredibly remote. Uh, there were some people around there who needed to be evacuated, and, and no one lives there now. But it is safe to visit, and for the past uh, 30 or 40 years or so, uh, twice a year, I think it's the first Saturday in October and in April, uh, the public is allowed to, to visit the Trinity site. What's it like when people go to visit there? I mean, what, what sort of thing do people expect sure. to see well, when they come? Well, another journalist and I joined um, a caravan of cars leaving from the nearby town of Alamogordo. Because it's in um, a currently active missile range or military installation, you ha you're not really allowed to color outside the lines uh, when you visit Trinity, and so you meet up with this caravan, there's sort of a brief security check, sort of like going to the airport, and then we drove about an hour into the desert, and when you finally get there, there's sort of a large gravel parking lot with a lot of people, a lot of SUVs, it seems like, from Texas, and there are a couple of stands selling hot dogs and people selling um, books about uh, atomic history, and then you walk down a corridor that's marked off by um, a chain link fence with some barbed wire on the top and there are signs on it that say caution radioactive materials beyond the fence but uh, the radioactivity there is not, is not um, a health hazard I should say right off the bat because I probably wouldn't have gone if it is anyway you walk down this long corridor through the desert it's very dusty and sunny and sunny and so sunny and then you finally get to sort of a large enclosed area still still with the fencing and that's where the obelisk sits and um, people are wandering around sort of kicking their shoes in the, in the dirt and in the dust because, of course, there's a sign that says, you know, please don't handle the trinitite, which is this glassy residue that uh, is sort of this light greenish color rock that exists in the area that was created by the blast. And, of course, there's a sign that says trinitite is government property. Please don't pick it up and handle it. And so that immediately uh, makes everybody want to look for the stuff. And, and in fact, it's, it's all over the place. Uh, I, I took a picture with some in my hand, but I figured, as a journalist, I better not take any out of there or at least not write about it because that would be trouble. <laughs> well, that's the first thing people do, isn't it? You tell them not to do something, they go and do it. Exactly, exactly. When you visit, um, when you look at it, is, does it... Would you know that it was the site of a test like that, or is it actually, you know, surprisingly biodiverse, or or is it very obvious that some huge explosion happened there? It really is not obvious. I mean, I think in the 60s they bulldozed a lot of the um, sort of the residue and the glass that was created, and so now you have a lot of this kind of sagebrush desert landscape. It's a little more mountainous in the distance than I had imagined. Uh, being from New England myself, I, I had always pictured it as flat as a pancake as far as you can see. And in fact, it's sort of this basin area tucked between uh, two mountain ranges. Uh, but you really wouldn't know from a distance. And of course, there's this eight or 10 foot tall stone obelisk there and, and a little monument. But, you know, I was a little surprised not to see anything, for example, commemorating the war dead. This is certainly a science pilgrimage. It's not a war memorial. You know, the people there are wearing t-shirts with a periodic table on them. 
but it's a little strange that the tenor of the thing with the hot dog stand and nothing about sort of dead people, um, which is maybe an editorial for someone else to write. But a lot of people there are just are snapping pictures and are really excited to sort of be in the center of where this great scientific achievement happened, regardless of your politics. And and so that part is is really interesting to me. But from a distance, you would never never know. And in fact, you know what brought me to to Trinity and also to some other spots around the West this spring was this project I was working on called Accidental Wilderness. And because of this area around Trinity, the White Sands Missile Range, is still off limits to the public, for the past 60 years you have this flourishing uh, ecosystem there because there are no people, there's no roads, there's no houses, there's very little public disturbance. And so that is really an interesting irony. And the same story can be told for a dozen places across the American West where the military has set out this great boundary that says no, nobody really can come inside here except maybe some wildlife biologists now and then. And the result is, is some of the most vibrant ecosystems and biodiversity-rich areas uh, left really on the continent. Well, that's very exciting. So out of something quite violent can come a good story for biodiversity. Thanks so much, David. That was David Wallman. And you can find more of his articles on his website at david-wallman.com. Sarah, thank you very much. Coming up, Diana O'Carroll will be tackling the romantic question of why humans kiss each other. But first, sticking to the nuclear theme, Ben and Dave have been donning their radiation suits and taking a look at the radiation that's around us. Yet again, Dave has taken me aside into a darkened room, this time a lecture theatre, to show me something impressive that he's found for this week's Kitchen Science. So, Dave, today's show is looking at nuclear reactors and radiation. What are you going to show us, and is it safe? This is a perfectly safe experiment. What I've done is built a radiation detector using an old fish tank and some dry ice. So we're going to detect radiation, but surely that means we need a source of radiation. Well, although radioactive elements in the atmosphere are quite rare, there's still over 400 billion trillion atoms inside this fish tank. That's just in the air inside the fish tank, and then there's trillions more in the fish tank itself. So a very, very small percentage of those are radioactive, and some of them are decaying all the time. So when we're talking about rarity, it's relative, really, when you've got so many atoms in there. The odds of there being some that are undergoing some kind of radioactive decay are actually relatively high. That's right, yeah. Now, the way this detector works is I've got the fish tank upside down. At the bottom of the fish tank, I've just put a sheet of aluminium. I painted it black so it's easier to see things on it. And what's now at the top, on the inside, I've put a sheet of kitchen towel and covered it in isopropyl alcohol, basically rubbing alcohol. So the upside-down fish tank is actually sitting in a large polystyrene tray. Now, what's that for? Well, inside the tray, I've got some dry ice. In fact, this experiment's quite easy to do at home if you can get hold of the dry ice. And that dry ice is making that metal sheet at the bottom incredibly cold, about minus 80 degrees centigrade. So this is not something you could do with normal ice from your freezer, even if you mix it with salt, which does cause it to get very cold. No, you need a very, very large temperature difference. So what we've got at the top of this fish tank, we've got room temperature, and the isopropyl alcohol is evaporating, so you're getting lots of isopropyl alcohol vapour. And at the bottom, you've got minus 80 degrees C, so that's going to cause the isopropyl alcohol to condense. So what we should see inside there is a cloud of isopropyl alcohol droplets. But we're in the dark, so I can't see anything. If I turn on a torch and illuminate those you can see a cloud forming near the bottom of the fish tank and it's falling down all the time. Yes, just in the beam from that torch, you can see 
it looks like it's raining these tiny droplets. So that must be the alcohol condensing. But I would have thought it would be fairly consistent. It would be a nice even cloud, but it's not. Yeah, occasionally you see these lines of droplets which fall down. Now, these are actually created by radiation. A charged particle, something like an electron or an alpha particle, is created through a radioactive decay. It then flies through the air and it bounces off atoms of the air. These um, are ionised and it's a lot easier to form a droplet of alcohol around an ion than around normal air. So these seed little droplets of alcohol which then grow and form a line of cloud. So as well as seeing all of these droplets that are falling that have just spontaneously formed, these what look like aeroplane contrails that are forming throughout it, they're actually caused by radioactive particles. Now a lot of them just look like very thin wisps of contrail, but some of them are much shorter and much denser and much, much easier to see. So what's the difference there? I imagine what's going on is that these are much heavier particles, so possibly something like an alpha particle, which has got twice as much charge as an electron, and much more momentum. It won't go through the air very long because it interacts with air molecules much more strongly, but when it does interact with them, it dumps lots of energy and produces much more ions. So I think probably these very short, very, very dense trails are probably alpha particles. You said earlier radioactive elements are very rare in the air, but there will be some there. What's actually happening to them to create these intricate structures in the cloud? Well, you often get an unstable nucleus. So, for example, if you've got a nucleus which is too big to be stable, randomly, quite rarely, a small lump of that nucleus, so maybe two protons and two neutrons, a helium nucleus and alpha particle, will get detached from that. Um, nucleus. These are both very positively charged. They repel each other very strongly and so this nucleus will fly off with a huge amount of energy, creating an alpha particle which can do an awful lot of damage when it hits things. So that's what we're seeing with the thicker, denser but shorter lived lines in the clouds. But the long thin ones, the, the beta particles, the electrons, where are they coming from? That's when a neutron inside an atom decays to form a proton and an electron and the electron has lots and lots of energy and it flies off so what has all of this got to do with nuclear reactors? This radiation is one of the major hazards of a nuclear reactor because lots of the byproducts of the nuclear reactions are radioactive and when these particles go through your body they can cause all sorts of havoc, damage DNA and such like. That is basically why nuclear power is so dangerous. Looking in your fish tank, there's quite a lot of activity going on. We're seeing quite a lot of these contrails. Does that mean that there's actually lots of radiation in the air around us? And could that be dangerous? I mean, there is a fair amount of background radiation. It varies depending on where you are. If you live in Cornwall or somewhere on a big lump of granite, the granite's got some uranium inside it and that can decay to form a gas called radon, which is radioactive itself and that can build up in people's houses and can actually do damage. They've shown that some cancer rates are higher in places on granite than not on granite. But the levels are relatively low and there's not a lot we can do about them, to be honest. Well, this is a really simple but beautiful setup and it shows us something that we just can't normally see but is it really any good for detecting radiation it's never really been used like a geiger counter in order to detect radiation wandering around it's not a very convenient thing to carry around it was one of the original ways of discovering about the fundamental particles of the universe because if you apply a magnetic field to this a charged particle will be forced to go around a corner and you can work out its charge to mass ratio by how sharp a corner it goes around and charged particles go in a straight line 
and a lot of the original particle physics was done using cloud chambers. And even CERN now works, although not using cloud chambers, on derivatives of them using semiconductor detectors rather than little droplets of alcohol, but working on the same principle. So from the humble beginnings of a cloud chamber like this, we end up with incredible experiments like today's LHC. That's all we have for Kitchen Science this week, and we'll be back with more very soon. So, a cloud chamber, simple box with a source of vapour at the top and a cold bottom, lets us see radioactive processes that are going on in the air. It's absolutely staggering that, that you can do it with a fish tank and a bit of dry ice and some alcohol in your garage. Uh, we'll put the effects, uh, pictures that we took earlier this week, on our website at uh, nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science if you want to take a look. And uh, you can also find out about a whole load more experiments that you can do at home if you want to have a go at doing that. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. It's Chris Smith and Sarah Caster-Perry, and we're talking about radiation, energy and the nuclear industry at the moment. If you have any questions, email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist. It's Chris Smith and Sarah Caster-Perry. We're talking nuclear this week, and we have with us uh, Swadesh, who is an expert in nuclear fusion and the nuclear industry. I have a question for you, Swadesh. Um, it's from H-Town Insomniac, who says, how much does nuclear waste storage actually cost? And with that factored in, is nuclear energy still cheap? Yes. The Yucca Mountain site, which was designed by the U.S. Uh, folks, of course not with a tremendous amount of enthusiasm, was expected to cost about $90 billion to $100 billion, and it would have stored the waste of about 40 years of uh, operation of uh, 50 to 100 nuclear reactors. So if you really try to just divide it all over, I think it adds uh, just a few cents to the cost of electricity. And, of course, you've got to factor in the environmental impact, which is that we're not releasing CO2, as Ian Farnan said. We're sparing, for every uh, tonne of uh, uranium, the equivalent in CO2 terms of a million tonnes of coal. Right, right. The very important thing, of course, is that um, it's very difficult for us to be able to engineer too many such repositories with, the, with 10,000 to 200,000 years of uh, lifetime. So I think we should have minimum number of them, and if nuclear energy is going to have a renaissance, we really must destroy waste before we store it. Destroy as much as we can. If we reduce it by to, to its 10% or to 1%, the better it is. And we are not going to be able to get 100 Yucca Mountains if the nuclear energy were to take off, for instance, which is what will be needed if we try to store untreated waste. That's a political as well as a physical impossibility. I've got another question for you here, Swadesh, from Martin Kilgore. Uh, just quickly, if nuclear waste is hot, can it be used as an energy source, so as a geothermal energy source? Uh, yes, it can be, but when an actinide fissions inside a nuclear reactor, it produces about 200 mega MeV of energy. That means a large amount of energy in a single reaction. In anything that you might be able to get from the geothermal things will be about a factor of 40 to 50 less. So it will be a tremendous wastage of the actinide energy just to get it in the form of geothermal energy from the waste. And also, presumably, taking into account the infrastructure you would have to plumb in in order to recover the heat from the, the storage materials, you, you just wouldn't be financially or, or from a safety perspective viable, would it? Too little energy for that much investment. 
Okay, Swadesh, thank you very much. That's Swadesh Mahajan joining us. Um, I've got a quick question from John Reed, who says, how do nuclear reactors like those on ships and power stations actually limit the chain reaction that occurs in plutonium-fueled bombs? And the answer is they use what are called control rods, and these are dense materials which, when dropped down into the reactor, soak up some of the neutrons that are produced by the nuclear chain reaction. And the consequence of that is that there's fewer neutrons left to bust open other uranium or fissionable uh, nuclei, and as a result, the chain reaction is slowed down. And by putting the fuel rods in or drawing them out, you can speed up and slow down the chain reaction, and therefore you can affect how much energy actually comes out of the reactor. Sarah. Fantastic. Now it's time to get loved up with Question of the Week with Diana O'Carroll. This week started with a kiss. Hello, naked scientists. Uh, this is Nelson from Cambridge. And my question is, is there any biological benefit to kissing amongst humans? Thank you. So what's the point of giving someone a Frenchie? Here's Gordon Gallup, Professor of Psychology from the State University of New York at Albany. Well, we think that kissing is part of an evolved courtship strategy and that kissing conveys information at an unconscious level about health and uh, a person's reproductive viability. We've discovered that among The majority of undergraduates that we've surveyed, they report, both males and females, having been attracted to someone only to discover on one or more occasions that after they kissed them for the first time, they were no longer interested. So we think there are hardwired unconscious mechanisms that come into play at the moment of a kiss based on the exchange of information based on posture and odor and taste and smell that activate mechanisms that come into play to make a determination about whether continuation in this relationship would be in the person's long-term reproductive best interest. We discovered that females place a lot more emphasis on kissing than males do. Females not only kiss for purposes of mate assessment, but once females are in committed relationships, they continue to rely on kissing as a means of monitoring and updating the status of their relationship. Males, on the other hand, tend to kiss for one of two reasons, primarily as a means to an end, namely for purposes of gaining sexual favors or as a means of attempting to achieve reconciliation. A kiss might tell us something of our partner's fertility, and Gallup found that the majority of females use kissing to check on their relationship, whilst males see it as a stage in getting to sex. Though this likely isn't true of everyone. Gallup also hypothesizes that during a kiss between a male and a female, some of the man's testosterone may be transferred to the female. Over a long period of time, this could affect her libido. On the forum, RD suggested more historical reasons. Perhaps it's a development of mothers chewing their food to give it to their babies mouth to mouth. But from masticating to flatulating now for next week's question. Hello, Naked Scientist. My name's Matthew, and I've been enjoying your show for some time now. Recently, you featured a question about how much force a stream of we exerts against somebody who's standing. In a related area, and being the mature, intelligent adult that I am, I was wondering, how much gas would somebody who weighs 10 stone have to expel and at what force in order to lift themselves one inch off the ground? Thank you very much. 
get your calculators and beans out for this one. How much of a fart is needed to lift a ten-stone person? Answers can be emailed to chris at thenakedscientists.com or written on our interactive forum. And you can find that at thenakedscientists.com forward slash forum. That was Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. So hold your nose for question of the week next week. That is it for this week. That's all we've got time for. Join us next time for our question and answer extravaganza when we'll be answering all of your scientific questions and problems. Speaking of which, if you have anything you'd like us to look into on your behalf, then please email me, chris at thenakedscientists.com or Twitter at us. Our handle is at Naked Scientists, and we've also got a Facebook page where you can scribble down anything you'd like us to look into on your behalf. The details of everything covered in this week's programme are on our website at nakedscientist.com if you'd like to read up a bit more. And, very importantly, it's coming up to ten years of The Naked Scientists, and so we're running a survey at the moment to discover exactly who is listening to us and also to find out what you think we could do a bit better. As an added incentive, we're offering you Amazon vouchers worth 10 quid, that's £10, and they're going to 10 lucky respondents that we pull out of the hat who answer by 10, 10, 10. That's the 10th of October, 2010. You can find the survey and fill it in at thenakedscientist.com forward slash survey. Meanwhile, let me say thank you to our guests who appeared in this week's programme, Ian Farnan, Bill Stacey, Swadesh Mahajan and David Woolman, and also to our production team, Mira Senthalingam, Diana O'Carroll, Ben Vowsler and Tom Simpkins. The Naked Scientist was produced and presented by me, Chris Smith, with Sarah Caster-Perry and in association with The Open University. And you can discover a whole range of science content and lots of interactive features at The Open University's website, which you can get to if you go to nakedscientist.com and then follow the links on our front page to The Open University. Thanks for listening and see you next time. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.